Back in the late 1940s, millions of soldiers were returning home from World War II, all eager to start lifelong careers after serving their country. Over two-thirds of the men getting out of the Army want a job. And almost all of them want a job characterized not so much by the big money as by permanence, by security. Catherine Hamilton's grandfather was one of those men. Before the war, Leon Johnson was a surveyor for the Virginia Electric and Power Company in Richmond, Virginia, and they had promised to treat him well after his service. When he came back, the electric company had promised him a job, and he really loved working for the utility, and he was able to work his way up. He ended up being um, senior vice president and building their corporate headquarters and designing the building and being very involved in that. He wanted Catherine and her siblings to be just as invested in the utility as he was. My grandfather was a company man, as he called it. It was the company and wanted everybody in the family to work for the company because he was very loyal to it. After studying creative writing in college and moving to Paris to get a degree in French, Catherine tried serving subpoenas at a law firm, but it just didn't feel right. So she applied for a job with her grandfather's utility. And just like that, she was working for the company. I had done a summer job as a technical writer at the utility when I was in college. I really kind of liked it. I thought, well, you know, it's always there. And it turned out they really needed people to come and work. Since she wasn't an engineer, the utility placed her in their three-year program. She spent her nights taking engineering classes and her days learning the ins and outs of Dominion, Virginia Power. I'd have to go out in the field with my staking bag. I'd have to figure out what had to be built. I had to look at what the load of the customer was going to be and design all of the switches and transformers that would have to serve that customer. I'd have to figure out how many cables it would take. I'd come back and draw it out on a blueprint. And then I would have to go out and make sure the crews built what we wanted them to and that the customer would be happy and get lights in the end. It was a very innovative place to be. It wasn't that they were necessarily innovative because they wanted to be creative. It was out of necessity. They had to be because they had to serve their customers and they had to figure out how are we going to get power from point A to point B in the most efficient way possible because we can't build out the substation fast enough. And after they stopped building the substations and they had enough power, then they didn't have to be as creative as they were when I was there. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say that utilities are slow to change, that they don't innovate fast enough. And while it might not always seem like the most cutting-edge industry, there are lots of people working really hard to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer-centric. This week, I'm talking with Katherine Hamilton, the chair and co-founder of 38 North, a public policy firm focused on clean energy and climate. She spent more than three decades working at and with utilities, so she knows they can be innovative. Now she helps make policy to speed up that innovation. I'm Danny Lewis. And I'm Alex Osola. On The Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast, we explore the projects reimagining the world of tomorrow. Like using sound to rejuvenate coral reefs. Moving microchips beyond silicon. Silicon is no longer energy efficient and how animals are helping treat human diseases. The future of everything is happening right now. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I've been able to find a place that I'm very comfortable and where I can bring a long history of knowledge and understanding of how things work into solutions that I think will also work on the policy side. 
I talked with Catherine about her work on major public policy, like the recent infrastructure bill and the historic Inflation Reduction Act. But we started with her early career and why she made the jump from utility employee to clean energy and climate policy advocate. After Virginia Power, you went to NRail, where your work really focused on innovation, and you were really inspired by the people there. You served in a role that connected the research with policy. How did that set the stage for your work later on policy? Yeah, NRail was awesome. I always say it's my favorite place I ever worked, and I I run my own company, so that says something. I mean, they were just incredible. Everybody lived um, everything they, they did. They lived, they built their own solar homes. It was just an incredible venue for innovative people and thinking. And I started very much on the technical side. So I was designing an energy audit program for federal buildings. I did a water, water efficiency program at the same time. It was very much about doing something technical in service of the government. Now, during that time, I also really liked working with all of these different federal agencies. I thought they were really interesting, and I I liked that they had to bring all these decision-making processes to the table, too, that didn't just have to do with the technology, but had to do with the policy they were living under. So when I was given the chance to do be the manager of um, government relations for the lab, I jumped at the opportunity because it enabled me to connect all the technology that I'd worked with to be able to explain it and think about it to policymakers in a way that really distilled it to what does it mean? And I was used as an expert witness before Congress. I was able to go with the lab director and try to explain what the lab did to members of Congress and senators. And I really enjoyed that because it did enable me to connect the dots. It also made me be really fresh on all the technologies the lab was doing, not just building technologies where I had been working. So you've had a varied career. After NRAIL, you were co-director of a biomass association. Later, you worked to evaluate clean energy deals for a private equity firm called Good Energies. Then you were president of the Gridwise Alliance. And later, you were policy director for the Energy Storage Association. Uh, and then you finally, you started your own firm, 38 North Solutions. So very storied career, a lot of different types of companies. You know, so I'm curious to get your thoughts. What has changed the most in the utility and clean energy sector over the four decades you've been working on this stuff? So innovators have always had a really hard time working with utilities. I think that is starting to change. I think utilities have carved out a space for innovation. Some of them have carved out a special space where innovation doesn't necessarily get into the main part of the utility business. But others are really trying to think through um, for example, Green Mountain Power, they have this sort of incubator set up where they bring in innovative companies that have ideas. And if it work, if those ideas work, they will install them in their utility. They'll allow them to be tested and then potentially be part of the way utility does business. And that is new and different, and that's great. That has to happen a lot more than it does now because there's so much more we need to do. But the other piece of it is, All of those models are based on the utility having control over the innovation. And innovation is a lot more democratized. Anybody can innovate. Anybody can innovate anything in the basement of their home now with a computer. And so allowing for innovation outside of control and ownership of the utilities, that's the nut that we need to crack. Why are we still having to have the conversation about the importance of the customer? Why why is the demand side and the supply side not yet fungible? So I'm involved in a lot of integrated resource planning processes in a bunch of different states. And one thing that is very clear is that the customer is seen as load. The customer is seen as that's the load and we have to build the entire system to serve that load. 
the customer is not seen as a resource. If it is, if the customer has solar and net metering, that's like an accounting issue that they have to deal with, but that's still not seen as a real resource. And that's the paradigm we have to change. So utilities do all these demand-side management um, analyses, what's the potential, you know, what could we do? But often those reports sit outside of the planning process. So the planning process is still about how do we get load How do we serve the customer load rather than how is the customer then able to also serve as a resource and be part of that? And I think one of the reasons that's hard to do is that it means that in some way the utility has to let go a little bit and has to lose control. I don't think that necessarily means that it's bad for the utility. I think you can still give the utility all the information they need. I don't think that it means that a customer shouldn't have a lot of choices at their fingertips, that they can participate in a really active way. I just think it means a culture and mindset shift. You were involved in these issues and in the industry back in 2009 when the Waxman-Markey bill failed. It was supposed to be a historic federal investment in clean energy, but it, it didn't meet those expectations. What did that era teach you about policy opportunities and constraints? It was a really disappointing loss when that bill went down. But looking back on it, um, it did lay all the groundwork for what we were able to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. It seeded all of that. It started socializing some of those concepts. But it was really much more a stick than a carrot. So the Waxman-Markey bill put a lot of constraints on utilities. That's what it proposed to do. It, It wanted to limit emissions in a way that was much more constraining and regulatory in nature then the Inflation Reduction Act, which is much more about tax incentives and grant programs and things that are much, that are on the carrot side of the equation. And I think it just, it's the other t- side of the coin. And we were ready for it now. We were ready because we understood the issues that we have around climate. But technology has also been able to develop in the meantime that's made it much more accessible and much cheaper. So when you create tax incentives, there really is a market that can be developed. And so you have played a role with the Inflation Reduction Act. You helped write and advocate for it. Uh, It's a bill that undoubtedly accelerates grid decarbonization. What impact do you expect the Inflation Reduction Act to have on utilities? So I think the Inflation Reduction Act will have a huge impact on utilities. And some of them know that and some of them don't. (laughs) Um, And I say that because some state regulators and some utilities are getting ahead of it and saying, oh, okay, let's build in the Inflation Reduction Act. What's going to happen with this? And also the infrastructure bill that provides a lot of funding out there. Let's build those into how we think about the future. There are other states that aren't, that haven't looked, and and I will say in one of the states I'm working in, the commission actually said to the utility, you have to build the cost expectations from the Inflation Reduction Act, and that means the, the declining cost because of the incentives for solar, wind, storage, microgrids, all of those different technologies. You have to build that into your scenario planning because if you're looking at the next three to five years down the road, you have to take incentives into consideration those costs because the end result will not now necessarily be building a natural gas plant will be the most cost-effective option, right? It will be a host of other options that are now much more cost-effective, but you have to consider it in your analysis and all of your scenario planning. And I think that's where we have to make sure to hold utilities to that because a lot of them are not building that into their planning. And it will result in a more expensive grid down the line rather than 
all of these much cheaper resources coming on, which are still going to be built. The issue is, are they going to be able to interconnect? Are they going to be really able to participate in the entire system? And utilities will have to shift their minds around that. Now, we're pretty early in yet, so I think part of this is just utilities have to get their head around what is this going to mean in their scenarios and in their planning processes, but it will impact all of them. Hey, it's Brad with a podcast recommendation. If you're curious how big businesses are encouraging renewable energy while confronting climate change, then you really should be listening to the Climate Rising podcast from our friends at Harvard Business School. Climate Rising is a great show that gives you a behind-the-scenes view into how some of the world's best and brightest business leaders are doing and what more they should be doing to combat climate change. Hosted by Harvard Business School professor Mike Toffel, Climate Rising dives into the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents to innovators and businesses, as well as the technology that's helping them along the way. If you're new to Climate Rising, then I check out their episode with BGC. That is Boston Consulting Group. Going green may sound easy, but for the companies that operate globally or have thousands of suppliers, it can take a lot of planning. You'll learn how BCG is using artificial intelligence to help their clients accurately measure and reduce their carbon footprint. So don't miss it. You can listen to Climate Rising on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You said there's a a disconnect between the economics of renewables and the actual long-term resource plans utilities are developing. If renewables and storage are so much more cost competitive, why are we still seeing lots of utilities emphasizing gas over cleaner options? This gets back to the control issue. It depends on what the utility has control over. And remember, so much of their drivers are about knowing what's happening at all times, being able to control it, being able to operate it, make sure it's safe, cost-effective, et cetera. So there are a lot of things in their DNA that all go into, we're going to build what we know and understand. And if otherwise, you have the Wild West, you have all these people coming, building building things willy-nilly, and then we have to try to include it in our system. So that, that's that's from their point of view what they're seeing. And I think there has to be a way for everybody be, to be able to thrive at the same time. I don't think the utilities have to own all of these generating assets at all. I think a lot of this can be developers coming in and doing things that are new and different, You know, whether it's building community solar, virtual power plant, et cetera, um, and utilities being able to understand, you know, I, I need information about it, but I don't have to control it for it to be a real part of my system. And we're seeing a lot of technological progress, you know, around things like virtual power plants, managed EV charging, large-scale renewables. What are the consequences for utilities that are not proactive in embracing these types of innovations? I think utilities that don't embrace it will find that their customers are going to have a lot of workarounds. There will be workarounds because electric charging will be there anyway, Um, electric vehicles are coming anyway, electrification, heat pumps, all of these things are coming anyway. And so there will be this issue of uh, what do we do with it now? Um, I also think that it means, unfortunately, that utilities that don't embrace it often, those areas may not be able to benefit as much from those technologies as they would if a utility were to embrace it and really try to promote it and make sure that their customers are aware and understand the technology and that all of their types of customers and customer classes have access to that technology. So I think, you know, on one sense, it's coming anyway. On the other sense, it's much better if they embrace it because then everybody benefits. Talk to me a little bit about a utility program that you think gets it right. So one state that has been working on this for a long time is New York. New York has an advantage because 
Of course, they have leadership that very much embraces climate policies, so they have a lot of policy in place. They have organizations like NYSERDA that promotes R&D and kind of test beds for a lot of new technology. They have utilities that are decoupled from generations, so they're able to do more on the demand side. And they also have their own ISO, their independent system operator, within the state to be able to figure out the wholesale market for all of these programs. So New York has been a really interesting testing ground for a lot of different programs, and that's been going on for a decade. All of these different types of rate programs, different, you know, their value of distributed energy. And it doesn't mean they've gotten it perfect, but it means they've had a lot of time to fiddle with it and experience it and figure out what is going to work and what won't work and a sense that they're kind of all in it together. And I think that's been really important. Now, they're structurally different than a lot of other regions, but it's a good example of how everybody has to kind of come together to make something happen that's going to benefit everybody. You obviously know the language of utilities. Uh, How do you get them to move faster while being receptive to their own perceived constraints? One thing you have to do with utilities is acknowledge their DNA, acknowledge all of those things that are so important. And I know utilities um, throw around the word safety all the time, but that is so important. I mean, I've been under a line that blew up and it is not fun. It is not great to be in a situation where there's a massive safety issue. I mean, electricity is extremely dangerous. So you have to understand going in to talk to utility that all of these things are really important. Outages are huge. Reliability is really, really important to them. Resilience is important now, of course, and resilience is more about being able to recover quickly rather than just keeping the lights on all the time. All of these are really important and are really big constraints to utilities. So you have to go in with an understanding and acknowledgement of that before you say, and here's how I can make it better for you. Here's how I can improve that for you. And maybe you might perceive this as a risk, but you might also perceive it as something that's going to make your life easier. After the uh, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, attention now turns to how money gets deployed to the states and how the government will ramp up programs inside agencies. What do you see as the biggest challenges in implementing the IRA over the coming year, and where do utilities fit in? My biggest concern is that states won't take advantage of all the funding and programs that are available to them. So I'm hopeful that every single state, I know that in the IRA, every single state could stand to benefit but you want to make sure they all do. There, there needs to be a real effort to bring in every community into making sure that they can participate and benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think the utilities are huge enablers for that. I think utilities could serve as a really good conduit for being able to do that. Most of them are right now grappling with rate increases. And a lot of that has to do with their systems failing because of catastrophic storm events and things that are happening right now that they have to then recover from and repair from, and that, you know, they haven't increased rates in a while, so let's increase the rates. They're all looking at that, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act is positioned as a way to mitigate for that, and the utilities can be really influential in making sure that that happens in a way that benefits them and benefits all of those communities that stand to benefit. Why are you concerned that the states won't take advantage of the funds available to them? Is it a lack of education? Is it just the process that goes into having to acquire those funds? What What's the, the block? 
So when the Affordable Care Act was passed, a lot of states, a lot of governors said, we're not going to do this uh, for political reasons. We're not going to take advantage of this. We're not going to build this into our systems, our state systems, because it's Obamacare. I don't think it is that politicized at this point with the Inflation Reduction Act, but I do fear that. I fear that governors, that other organizations and states, legislators will say, you know, we don't really want this because it was a Biden program. It's not really going to help our people. And I would hate to see that happen because it really isn't to their benefit. And I would say, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act has billions and billions of dollars as well. And that was bipartisan. So I think they're, you know, if you're going to accept funding for you know, a ribbon cutting at a zillion projects in your state, I think that is to your benefit. I think that will become politically palatable. And I really hope that that's true for the Inflation Reduction Act as well. It doesn't need to be politicized. The uh, premise of this show is to highlight the cutting edge work from people inside and outside of utilities like yourself. Uh, Different utilities are working at different speeds, but there are a lot of people inside those organizations that are really trying to push the transition forward. A lot of them we're fortunate to highlight on this show. Um, What advice would you have for our listeners? Keep going. You can do it. (laughs) That's what I always say to people in utilities. Like, yeah, fight from the inside. Get done what you can. I know utilities can innovate. That is not the issue. I think they need to have a will to do it. And I think the will comes from the people inside the utility in large part. They can change the culture. You know, I had a hard time. I was a woman way back in the day. I hit the glass ceiling really early on. And when I left, I told the vice president of the company, I had an exit interview and I said, your glass ceiling is not going to help you. I would have stayed and tried to do this for my entire career if you'd let me and you wouldn't let me. So I think fighting from the inside is really important. And if you can, and if those glass ceilings have been raised for folks, I think you should continue to do it. Uh, We call this show With Great Power, which is a nod to the power industry. It's also a famous Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. What is the superpower you bring to the clean energy transition? nagging. I'm really good at that. And I don't know, uh, it's a little bit of which came first, (laughs) the chicken or the egg, whether uh, having kids made me good at nagging or they're good at nagging me and I learned from them. Um, But part of this is persistence. and And I mean that. It's like, Keeping going, keeping up what you do well and continuing to learn. I feel like everybody should be a lifelong learner. Every single training program that came up the utility I would take on, I learned how to design outdoor lighting. I know how to design outdoor lighting. I haven't had to use it, (laughs) but I learned how to do it. I learned how to do heat loss calculation and design heat pumps systems, but I don't have to use it, but that's okay. It's good to know that stuff and to continue to learn. And I would just say everybody should be doing that. As a father of two, I thought I nagged a lot, but uh, as a mother of four, (laughs) I'm sure you've uh, got quite the superpower in that area. Um, Very good. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. It was a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Oh, so glad to be on. It was really fun to talk about uh, utilities. Some of my favorite people are at utilities. Mine too. With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with PostScript Media. Delivering on the clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify the journey. GridX is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. 
Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, and Camille Stennis, all from PostScript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Markwand, and Bailey is our story editor. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If you're enjoying the show, and we really hope you are, please help us spread the word. You can rate the review us at Apple Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks again for listening. I'm Brad Langley. <laughs>